Welcome to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we are going to continue our in-depth coverage of the UN Conference on the Environment known as COP27. It is being held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and the location is controversial given the fact that the usual protesters that surround these UN conferences aren't able to get close to have their voices heard, although some are getting through. We have two guests with us today. We'll be talking with Dr. Shannon Gibson, and she will be on for our weekly Earth Watch, which is back. We partner with the Global Justice Ecology Project for our weekly Earth Watch, and she teaches courses and conducts research on global environmental politics, global public health, social movements, social justice, and community-based research. And she is following closely the activities and negotiations happening at COP27. And then uh, Tina Gerhardt returns. She was on with us last week. She is an environmental journalist and her work uh, published by Gris, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly. And she is covering COP27 for The Nation Magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The U.S. Senate has given its first approval to a bill to protect marriage rights for same-sex couples. The Respect Marriage Act passed a crucial hurdle with bipartisan support Wednesday and has become a top priority in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade abortion rights and threatening other precedents as well. Among them, same-sex marriage. Christopher Martinez reports. Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin is the lead Democratic sponsor of the measure. The Supreme Court should not be in a position to undermine the stability of families with a stroke of the pen. So now Congress must act. On the other side of the aisle, Susan Collins of Maine is the lead Republican co-sponsor. It would help promote equality, prevent discrimination, and protect the rights of Americans in same-sex and interracial marriages. H.R. 8404, the Respect for Marriage Act, would repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act that defined marriage as a legal union between a man and a woman. The measure would guarantee federal recognition of same-sex marriages with all the implications that has for things like medical decisions, taxes, social programs, and immigration statuses. The bill does not require states to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and more than 30 states currently have same-sex marriage bans on the books. But it would require them to recognize such marriages that are valid in other states. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez.
Republicans have won control of the House, setting up the stage to stymie Democrats and President Joe Biden's agenda and spur a new flurry of investigations. House Republicans are expected to announce plans to investigate President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and other associates they say have benefited from the president's power. A narrow GOP majority could pose challenges and complicate the party's ability to govern. Votes in several competitive House races are still being counted, especially with Democrats in control of the Senate. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, meanwhile, is expected to announce her plans with colleagues and whether she will seek another term as a Democratic leader or step aside. After the violent attack on her husband, she said in an interview she was reassessing her role in politics. Pelosi is expected to speak on the House floor today. In the Senate, Mitch McConnell was voted as Republican Minority Leader Wednesday. The Cherokee Nation wants a tribal representative seat in Congress. It was a topic of a House hearing Wednesday, Edwin Vieira reports. Cherokee Nation Chief Chuck Hoskin testified before the U.S. House Rules Committee examining laws and procedure to have a Cherokee Nation delegate become a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Cherokee Nation has, in fact, adhered to our obligations under these treaties. I'm here to ask the United States to do the same. It's time for this body to honor this promise and seat our delegate in the House of Representatives. No barrier, constitutional or otherwise, prevents this. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The United Kingdom is in a recession. Millions of British people face higher taxes and steeper energy bills after the government announced an emergency budget that includes 55 billion pounds in tax increases and spending cuts. Those making more than $148,000 a year face a 45% tax. There's also a new windfall profit tax on energy companies. Sally Patterson reports from London. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt confirmed the UK is now in recession. The Chancellor called for public spending discipline, but committed more funding for the National Health Service and education. Families, pensioners, businesses, teachers, nurses and many others are worried about the future. So today we deliver a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. Our priorities are stability, growth and public services. We are not alone in facing these problems, but today we respond to an international crisis with British values. In London, I'm Sally Patterson. Russian airstrikes have targeted Ukraine's energy facilities again as the first snow of the season fell in Kiev and brought below zero temperatures. The chilly weather is a harbinger of the hardship to come if Moscow's missiles continue to take out power and gas plants as winter descends. Poland, meanwhile, says it's investigating the missile strike on Polish land that killed two people. Western leaders have said it's likely a Ukraine missile trying to strike down Russian missiles and have put the blame on Russia for the war. U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley yesterday said Ukraine fending Russia off its entire soil is becoming more unlikely. The first time it admitted defeat, but he also said Ukraine is in a strong position to negotiate. The probability of a Ukrainian military victory defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include what they define or what they claim is Crimea. To the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high. There may be a political solution where politically the Russians withdraw. 
that's possible. Russia and Ukraine have extended a grain shipment deal out of the Black Sea port for another four months, relieving fears of another global grain shortage. Thousands of unionized Starbucks workers at more than 100 locations across the U.S. are walking off the job today on strike to protest what they say is a coffee giant's refusal to engage in good faith labor negotiations. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And those were our news headlines. So now we are going to go on to our in-depth coverage of the U.N. Conference on the Environment, known as COP27. This, as we all know, the world, the planet, uh, in a very serious uh, crisis, a climate crisis. And there are a lot of questions about whether governments are taking it seriously or not. A lot of controversial issues happening at COP27, but we're going to be discussing all of this with our guests. We're going to start with our weekly Earth Watch guest, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Shannon Gibson, who teaches courses and conducts research on global environmental politics, global public health, social movements and social justice, and community-based research. She received her PhD in international studies from the University of Miami. As a participant action researcher, she focuses on the role of disruptive politics and social movements in climate and health governance. She also works to engage students in active and experimental learning by teaching abroad from her research travel, such as the UN Climate Talks in Paris and Bonn and more. So Dr. Shannon Gibson, we're very happy that you're able to join us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, what is your role right now in COP27, if any? You're monitoring it closely. Tell us how you're doing that and why. Yes, I'm an accredited observer with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change through the Global Justice Ecology Project. And so even though we're not in Egypt because there were so many barriers to actually getting there, I am observing the talks with a group of USC students from the Wrigley Institute at Catalina Island. So we are staying up quite late at night due to the time change, starting watching the talks and the interventions and the plenary sessions you know, around 11 p.m. Pacific time and following them until 6, 7 a.m. So uh, trying to closely track what's happening with the treaty developments, as well as the role that civil society and climate justice activists are playing at the COP itself. Right. And, and perhaps you could tell us a bit about that, because we're not hearing a lot in the news that's being reported out about what's happening with climate justice activists and particularly your work that focuses on disruptive politics and social movements and climate change. Tell us what you know about what climate activists, what they've actually managed to do there, given all of the restrictions around security and protests, etc. What would be helpful for our listeners to know? Yeah, the first thing I would point out is that it has been quite difficult for the climate justice movement to effectively participate in this COP compared to previous COPs. I think Going into this with it being in Egypt, you know, and the geopolitical context there, we were expecting that, but we've been met with some challenges that we weren't necessarily expecting. So even before getting to Egypt, a lot of civil society groups faced issues with having their hotel reservations canceled. 
then when trying to rebook were charged two, three, four times the rates that they were originally quoted. Then for those people who have actually made it to Sharm el-Sheikh, the welcoming and, and the, the space there has not been that hospitable. We're hearing reports of lack of water, lack of Wi-Fi. It's very difficult to navigate the space. There are language barriers not enough volunteers to direct people. And so I've spoken to several that are there in the conference center who feel like those of us who are observing from the outside have a better read on the developments because they simply can't make it to meetings in time or if they get there, there aren't seats, there aren't headsets for language translation. So there's just been a lot of stumbling blocks for them to effectively engage. That being right. said. Yeah, Dr. Gibson, let me ask you this though. Because, you know, where does the blame lie for this in terms of the lack of water, headsets, et cetera? I mean, it is a U.N. conference, so it seems to me as though the U.N. apparatus, the U.N. itself, uh, holds some responsibility or should be accountable to some of this. I know there's a lot of finger pointing, and rightfully so, likely at the government of Egypt, and there have been protests around their position, including on political prisoners, etc. But where does the fault lay for this, for these kinds of issues people are having? I think that it's equally shared between the United Nations as well as the host of the COP. So since 2009, when, when talks fell apart in Copenhagen, the United Nations really has been tightening the amount of access that civil society has in terms of the amount of space, the amount of badges, the rules around performing protest or actions inside the COP. But when you look at the local context, more of the logistical issues, you know, the transportation between the blue zone, which is the negotiation space, and the green zone, which is where civil society is, or providing water and headsets, I think a lot of those finer details are definitely something that the, the host country is uh, in charge of. Right, yeah. And whether or not they have the resources and just didn't bother to do it or what. But given those challenges, though, Dr. Shannon Gibson, have civil society campaigners, climate justice activists been able to have an impact to make their presence felt? And if so, how? Yes, definitely. I think the one thing that climate justice activists have really really been hammering down on is this issue of funding for loss and damages. This was a somewhat controversial topic that was introduced a few years ago. We were hoping for a decision on it last year at COP26 in Glasgow, but they sort of punted it to this year. And we've heard certain governments, the United States, other developed countries within the European Union, really trying to say that they absolutely refuse to be held liable for compensation for current loss and damage related to climate change in developing countries. And it seems like the G77 or the group of developing countries with support from climate justice advocates are not letting this issue go and really pushing for a solid decision to implement a funding mechanism around this, uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. Right. Well, we know that there are some governments, particularly governments of the global south, that are pressing on this issue of loss and damages. Um, specifically, are you saying that uh, climate justice activists have been engaged uh, with those governments uh, that are pushing it? Um, have, have any protests at all, uh, you know, gotten through? 
um, any voices from the climate justice community speaking on official platforms or how has that worked in terms of the impact of climate justice activists on the discussion that's actually happening at COP, including on the issue of loss and damages, Dr. Gibson? I think the climate justice activists have been really strategic this year in combining both insider and outsider tactics to support their narratives around loss and damage. So for example, we've seen several protests outside of the climate negotiations, which delegates have to walk past daily in order to get to their meetings, to get to their closed room negotiations. And then simultaneously, we have activists with the Climate Action Network, the Campaign to Demand Climate Justice, that are submitting draft text, that are proposing interventions about what that language should look like. And not only are they working together with civil society, but they are also working closely to inform the positions of some of our developing countries, our low-lying island nations. Um, and so using that insider-outsider tactic, they're kind of putting a, a full court press, if you will, to really make sure that loss and damage doesn't get abandoned as it did last year. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Shannon Gibson, I mean, we have discussed on Sojourner Truth, you know, we regularly cover environmental issues. We regularly cover in particular, but not only um, the indigenous um, struggles and indigenous nations that have been so much at the forefront of uh, these uh, climate justice issues. But um, in the past, we have discussed that there is a kind of a power relation between the climate justice activists that are more community grassroots based and the larger um, I suppose, uh, climate justice um, organizations, the NGOs, you know, the large um, uh, non-governmental organizations. And I'm wondering how that divide is being balanced here. I mean, are you finding that the, the bigger, um, larger, you know, funded non-governmental organizations are working um, with, or, you know, networks like climate action network that I assume would be more of the, the kind that Global Justice Ecology Project and others, indigenous organizations, et cetera, would be part of. So tell us a, a bit about that, just who's involved in Climate Action Network and what has been the relationship and the working relationship with some of the bigger, better known, I should say, non-governmental organizations that work on environmental issues, uh, Dr. Gibson. Yes, yeah, so this is something that we've seen within the quote unquote environmental movement. And often it's time it's hard to say that there might even be a singular environmental movement because there's so much diversity in sort of thinking about what is the cause of these problems and what the solution should be and then what tactics they use in order to get their point across. And so we have seen division between sort of the more institutionalized mega NGOs that tend to be headquartered in the United States and the European Union compared to more frontline grassroots organizations that might embrace more of a justice rhetoric coming from indigenous um, people's organizations, communities of color from the global south. And so that that division has certainly existed. Um, it really sort of hit a peak around 2013, which led to um, some splintering in the networks so that we have the Climate Action Network, which tends to house some of the bigger mega NGOs, and then um, the, the, the campaign to demand climate justice, um, taking in more of the, the justice-oriented groups, frontline 
organizations, et cetera. Uh, and what I've seen since 2013 is that these climate justice activists have really done a lot to pull the more institutionalized, reformist, mainstream groups to the justice framework um, and to really get them to think critically about things like carbon trading, offsetting, and to support initiatives like loss and damage. So we're actually starting to see a bit more synergy and cooperation these days. Right. Well, that's that's really good to know. You're you're pulling them uh, more to the side of, of justice. And I imagine to the side of a lot of what the nations of the global south are you know, discussing. Um, just before you before you go, though, um, how are how are the students dealing with? I mean, what what are some of the things that they are uh, learning? Because you are monitoring it, as you say, with a group of students uh, based at the um, an institute in Catalina Island in California. What concerns have they raised, uh, or any observations uh, from their perspective that you can share with us? Yeah, I think two observations stand out. The first is that it, to them, it's quite shocking that this is how the negotiation process goes, that, that simultaneous discussion, some things are open, some things are closed. It's just so much to follow uh, as a single person, much less, you know, a smaller group. So it's easy to for them to see how, you know, for example, smaller developing countries or countries from the global south that don't have these delegations of three and 400 people, they can see how it's harder for them to engage in this process. And then the second thing that they always comment on is just the lack of a youth presence, right? With them being in their later teens and early 20s, to them it's quite jarring to see predominantly people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or even older that are the ones that are managing these talks and deciding the fate of the future. And so I think for them, they, they would like to see more youth presence. And if anything, it's motivation for them to hang in and to make sure that, that hopefully they can go in person in the future. Right. And finally, finally, too, what about the role of the United States and the positions that uh, the Biden administration is putting forward, John Kerry uh, being there on the ground? Any any thoughts on on the role that the U.S. is playing right now? Uh, it's it's hard to assess because on the one hand, in the U.S. context, Biden has come out with the Inflation Reduction Act and pledging to act on climate change. But it seems to be that that is a lot of talk and rhetoric when we get to the global level. And that when we look historically, that the U.S. still hasn't met the funding commitments that they made back in 2009 under the Obama administration. We're still pushing carbon markets and offsetting. Uh, John Kerry announced a new energy transition program that's also based heavily on these questionable market-based mechanisms. Um, they're drawing a hard line saying that the U.S. won't be responsible for liability and compensation of loss and damage. So it seems that the U.S. is, is talking one way about being supportive and multilateral and cooperative, but behind closed doors is drawing hard lines on certain aspects, especially when it comes to financial contributions. Well, I'll have to say I'm not surprised. I was um, part of the UN Women's Decade, and I remember at the conference, uh, the final decade conference in Beijing, China, uh, the United States delegation had one public position. I was working on the issue of valuing and measuring unwaged work done in the home on the land and in the community. 
and they had one public position supporting it. And but behind closed doors, they were negotiating the exact opposite position. Right? And we knew because there were people inside that were reporting uh, to us on the outside. So uh, I guess uh, some things uh, don't don't change. Just a final thought from you on the usefulness of these UN conferences, these COPs. I mean, this is the 27th one. And looking at the headlines, um, it seems as though The Guardian is reporting that even the 1.5, which is a, a global temperature you know, measure, that even that may be in trouble. Do you think that these UN events are actually useful? I imagine they suck up an enormous amount of resources, Dr. Gibson. So the one thing that's good about them is that it puts sort of the global eye on all of these actors and there's some expectation that there will be progress. But in the case of international diplomacy and law, there's also nothing to stop backsliding. And unfortunately, whether it's the 1.5 target, funding commitments, other issues like even acknowledging the IPCC reports that came out uh, this year, we're seeing some backsliding and delay. So on the one hand, it is good to get all of these actors in the room and kind of put the pressure on them to make statements and to make commitments. But on the other, I do think we certainly need to be aware of the fact that there's a hefty carbon footprint that comes with tens of thousands of people flying to different countries every year for this. It's questionable whether or not we're making enough progress each year. So I think moving forward, if the UN were to maintain the hybrid access that they've established as a result of the pandemic, that can hopefully maybe blend a little bit of, of the best of both worlds. But even now, we're not sure if they're going to maintain the hybrid portal moving forward. Right. Thank you for that. And I have heard of some climate justice activists who I suppose maybe it was going back to 2013, don't even bother, you know, to show up at these conferences any any further. But, uh, you know, just as you're you're monitoring disruptive politics, social movements and climate, et cetera, what message, I mean, what next do you think the climate justice movement as a whole has to focus on? We know in the U.S. there has been a push for Biden to declare a climate emergency. I wonder what, what you think of that. But, you know, the, the message, at least we'll, I'll hear more from Tina further in the show, on the one hand, you have a, a little bit of hope because finally, at least the loss and damage just seems to be on the agenda, but we don't know how far that's going to go. But on the movement side, what do you think we need to be doing, not only in the United States, but just building that global movement, Dr. Gibson? I think really engaging with youth activists right now is crucial as someone who teaches at a college university, um, seeing our students are dealing legitimately with eco-depression, eco-anxiety. This is affecting their ability to, you know, complete school, to think about getting a job. It's actually taking a toll on their mental wellness, well-being, and psyche. And so I think in, engaging students in these more local grassroots organizations where they can see progress in person, because I think you're correct, the COP can be very depressing. You don't see a lot of huge concrete victories at this high level. And so really engaging youth activists in local 
local fights is really important and making sure that they keep that engaged movement going forward. And then also just incorporating sustainability into curriculum and really kind of showing students that no matter what you major in, at some point you're going to have to start dealing with issues of sustainability, whether it's business, economics, you know, politics, et cetera. Um, So I think that's sort of a, a big point of looking forward. Have you heard from the monitoring that you've done any discussion around natural, what's called natural farming or soil regeneration as critical also for dealing with the climate crisis? Have you heard any discussion on that at all or not really? I know that there has been a decision on agriculture that I believe encompasses some of those policies and others that look at nature-based solutions to climate change, but I'm not familiar with all the details of those. Right, right. Fair fair enough. Well, on that note, we appreciate you, Dr. Shannon Gibson, for joining us. And we know there's still a few more days left for COP, so we're going to be continuing our coverage. And we also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them weekly for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. So we want to thank them as well. Thank you, Dr. Gibson. Thank you. All righty. We are going to take a short station break. And when we return, Tina Gerthardt, environmental journalist who's covering COP27 for The Nation magazine, will be with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This November, the 27th annual United Nations Climate Conference is taking place in Egypt. We interviewed award-winning activist and Global Justice Ecology Project board member Nemo Bassi about his expectation for this year's Conference of Parties. The only hope I see with the COP is the hope of what people can do outside the COP. The mobilizations that the COPs instigate or generate, the meetings across the world talk about climate change, people taking reaction, indigenous groups organizing, and choosing different kinds of agri- different methods of agriculture that help to cool the planet, people just doing what they can. That, to me, is what holds hope. The COP itself is a rigged process that works in a very colonial manner of loading climate responsibility on the victims of climate change. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Steve Taylor for Global Justice Ecology Project. 90.7 FM. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can subscribe for a free 
podcast as well. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Jackson, Mississippi, where there's a huge crisis with water, Jackson, Mississippi. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to SoundCloud listeners in my home island of Barbados in the Caribbean. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and this is our in-depth coverage of the United Nations Conference on the Environment, known as COP27. It's in its second week. It's supposed to wrap up on November the 18th. We'll see if this will happen or not, but we are so glad um, that Uh, Tina Gerthardt is able to join us again. She is an environmental journalist. Her work has been published by Gris, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly. And her book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, which discusses the impacts of sea level rise on islands around the world, will be out with the University of California Press in May 2023. And I, for one, Tina, very much looking forward uh, to that book being uh, from one of those small islands myself. Uh, Tina Gerhardt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be with you as ever. Okay. So, Tina, you were with us last week, and I imagine uh, quite a lot has happened uh, between last week and now, or maybe not, (laughs) maybe not so much. First, tell us, where does the debate on loss and damages stand? And again, explain to our audience what we mean by the demand for loss and damages, Tina. Great. Yeah, I'm happy to start there. I I kind of predicted that loss and damages was going to be a big issue for this year's UN climate negotiations. And your previous guest, Dr. Gibson, also just underscored the importance of it. So so what is loss and damages? It it basically refers to, um, it's kind of like what the name sounds, it basically refers to things that have been lost that cannot be returned due to the climate crisis. You can think about drought, you can think about the effects of, you know, flooding, say, on Pakistan, about a third of Pakistan is underwater. So there's irreversible damages. There are crops that are lost that are never going to be able to come back. Um, and then there there uh, are damages. And, you know, there's questions there about whether or not there can be some restoration or return there. Um, but basically, the nations in what gets called the global south are looking for compensation from nations in the what gets called the global north for loss and damages. And the reason is that nations in the global north have benefited historically for centuries from emitting fossil fuels. And the impacts of that fossil fuel emission are felt disproportionately by nations in the global south. And they so they're feeling these effects more intensely. They also have less um, monies in order to deal with some of these effects. And that's why they're, you know, those are the two reasons why they're asking for loss and damages. This has been a term that's been bandied about since the very beginning of the UN climate negotiations. Um, there's a group called Carbon Brief that has a history, um, like a quick timeline of the of loss and damages. Um, but they've never, this term has never been acknowledged in the UN climate negotiations to the extent that it 
makes it into one of the final agreements with language that stipulates specifically we are now going to set up a mechanism. It also gets called a, a facility. Um, these, you know, these nebulous words, um, in order to to move this forward. So that's what they're working on right now. They're trying to get language into this agreement, and they're trying to get details into the agreement that set up this facility or mechanism in order for funds to be able to move. This issue has created some of the most tension, right? In, uh, in this uh, COP and that the wealthy countries are balking, right, at what mm -hmm. uh, the Wall Street Journal calls uh, being on the hook and that they disagree, as you say, with developing uh, nations on the details. Um, mm -hmm. They're reporting that the richer countries are skeptical that, uh, that, you know, they don't believe a new fund is necessary and say existing facilities could be used. Now, I, I'm not exactly sure what the heck they're talking about here. Yeah, right. Um, Getting through the weeds of, of UN jargon <laughs> and UN negotiations. I mean, I thought, you know, what you had asked Dr. Gibson about, which she also replied to in your conversation with her and what, which you also commented on having personal experience with, I thought that point was crucial. So there are nations in the global north that are holding up the process right now. We can, you know, name those entities. They are the U.S., um, the, you know, nations that make up the EU, nations that are not part of the EU, such as Greenland, have also been accused of holding up these negotiations on loss and damages. What I think I, I completely agree with that the two of you were talking about, each having had your own experiences with this, is this talking out of each side of one mouth with a different like message? Public facing comments that John Kerry has been giving and the coverage of this issue that the New York Times, um, which has an excellent journalist that has been covering these UN climate negotiations, I think since almost the very beginning. You know, what what they have been writing is that Kerry is supportive of loss and damages. And yet internal to the negotiations. They're holding them up. So it's this, you know, it's this public versus private kind of, you know, uh, you know, two different uh, arguments being made in public versus, you know, the private negotiations or what's being publicly reported versus these negotiations. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the global north has a lot to lose if they create this kind of mechanism or facility. They will be on the hook for the advantages that they have reaped for, for centuries. I mean, basically burning of fossil fuels is what has gotten us here, but it is also what has, has, has led to, it's also what's made it possible for nations in the global North to enrich themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's profit to them, right? So these are monies, if you, if you do the math that way, these are monies that are owed by the global North because they've already they've already reaped those benefits. They've made that money. Vanuatu, an island in the Pacific, has demanded an opinion from the International Court of Justice on what responsibility nations have to climate vulnerable countries and to future generations. And a decision, they're waiting for that decision right now, but a decision here in favor of Vanuatu would tip the scales of obligation for the global north. Basically, you know, if nations have responsibility to climate vulnerable countries, the question then would be, you know, what are we going to do about that? Um, so I think that's really important to to track is, is the loss and damages and whether it gets set up. The last that I heard 
um, from the negotiations just a couple of hours ago is that they do plan to, in the draft text, we'll see what ends up in the final text, they do plan to go with what in UN speak, it's called the Santiago Network. Basically, that is an agreement that that there will be some sort of fund transfer and a mechanism for it set up. But again, you know, we have to wait the outcome of this conference and see if that actually ends up in the final. Yeah, and uh, we'll see about that. Uh, I mean, a couple of things. One, this kind of having one public position and then having another private position. I mean, what we did, the uh, Women's Network, in, at, at that time in the UN conference, we just publicly called it out, you know. And you know what I mean to say, look, mm-hmm. um, to the US delegation, you're saying this in public, but we know very well behind closed doors, this is your position. Please publicly clarify it. I mean, it's just outrageous how that kind of thing, how that kind of thing happens. But, you know, Tina, it was going back, I think, 1991, that the Alliance of Small Island States, which are 39, um, Mm -hmm. you know, small islands, you know, put forward this business about financial burden of loss and damage. And now you have Pakistan, that's the chair of this 134, I suppose, uh, used to be the G. Uh, 77, but it's now 134 developing nations plus China that are really pushing uh, for this fund. And the thing that outrages somebody like me, Tina, given the fact, I mean, I'm from Barbados, I'm from an island that created enormous wealth, not only for the United, for, for the UK, but also the United States. You have the universities like Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, Rutgers, and others that developed and were built on wealth coming from Barbados. That's how brutal uh, the slavery in Barbados was. The only uh, place in the world that the entire economy was built on slavery there was nothing else except that, right? With the average uh, lifespan of an enslaved person being 18 years. So I have a serious case, (laughs) Um, not only against the UK, but if we look at who owes what to whom and the work of Walter Rodney with how Europe underdeveloped Africa, et cetera, and even the whole discussion that happens in the United States, even on something like reparations, et cetera, I mean, those of us who traditionally have been disenfranchised, discriminated against, and whose work made enormous wealth for these economies that then proceed to destroy not only our environment, but the environment of everybody, has a lot of gall to say, hey, you, you're cutting into our profit here. So, you know, why mm-hmm. why should we pay? Do you know what I mean? I think there's, there's like really a, a larger political question uh, going on here, Tina. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right to 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 frame it with with regard to this this larger these larger questions and this larger history. I think this is absolutely part and parcel of what needs to be discussed. And to some extent, I have the sense. I mean, I appreciate the question that you asked of Dr. Gibson. What comes out of these UN climate negotiations? Are they worth it? I think one of the the there's a number of you know good things I can say that are coming out of the UN climate negotiations. And I do think precisely the kind of context that you're laying out um, that, that, that frames this issue of the environment, not only as an environmental issue and 
you know, climate reparations, if one even wants to use that terminology as one that narrowly has to do with CO2 emissions, I think framing it in terms of um, who enriched whom and these larger questions of whose labor, whose land, um, you, you know, did this profit come from and did it enrich? They're absolutely vital. And I actually think that they're becoming part of the discussions at the UN climate negotiations, whether or not they're explicitly named <laughs> the way that we're talking right now is another thing. But, you know, I mean, Mia Motley, the, the prime minister of Barbados, she, you know, gave a speech last year at the opening ceremony of COP26 in Glasgow, it turned heads, but she's really bringing attention to a new matter. And it's one that I'm working on an article right now about this topic for the nation that should be out soon. She put forward the Bridgetown agenda, which is, you know, I, I looked it up. I was dreading that it was going to be a 372-page policy docu document. Y your listeners can look it up. It's a, it's a short one-page text. But if she's successful with what she's looking to accomplish in this Bridgetown agenda, the implications of it are going to be much larger than having a, a good treaty come out of one of these UN climate negotiations. Specifically, what she's calling for in it is an overhaul of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to ensure social, economic, environmental, racial justice with this bigger framing that you were mentioning. So she's citing... Uh, a developing debt crisis due to the twin impacts of the global pandemic and the climate crisis, which is piled on top of the already increased cost of living. Um, and she's calling for a reform of quote unquote, global financial architecture. So she's asking for the board of the International Monetary Fund to suspend debt payments for the poorest countries to, you know, to the IMF, to suspend any interest surcharges that they're putting on any kind of payments that need to be made, and then to make a billion dollars immediately available to those who need it. Just make it available. Um, she also supports these calls for loss and damage, um, which we've talked about. Um, but basically, she's really asking for, um, as, as the Bridgetown agenda puts it, quote, a new financial system that drives financial resources towards climate action, end quote. And she, she says specifically, uh, in this agenda, or the agenda states, quote, most climate vulnerable countries do not have the fiscal space to adopt new debt. Um, and she she talks about the fact that it would, it would be really terrible if we are really good at rescuing banks, but bad at saving countries, right? So this is the kind of overhaul that she's she's looking for right now. Um, an advisor to her said, why do we have $200 billion worth of profits in the last quarter when a third of Pakistan is underwater, which is estimated to have created about $40 billion worth of irreversible loss and damages. So this, in terms of the IMF and the World Bank, what I think is helpful um, as context for your listeners, and I do want to jump over to Lula, who you mentioned earlier. The IMF and the World Bank were set up by 44 countries, not the entire world, 44 countries, as you mentioned when we last spoke, 44 countries meeting in 1944 at the end of World War II. So this wasn't decided by the majority of the globe, as you pointed out when we last spoke. Um, but it was decided this 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 IMF World Bank new neoliberal financial order, the Bretton Woods system, was decided for the entire world 
by those 44 countries. Now, what I find really interesting about her overhaul, which could be the most radical economic, political, environmental shift in the last century um, and could work towards economic and environmental justice, no small accomplishment or feat, I, I think. Um, I take that in tandem with Lula's call today. You had said at the outset he was causing quite a stir today. He called today to reform the UN, and he stated specifically that, quote, I can't imagine that the UN's directed by the same geopolitical rationale of World War II. The world has changed. Continents want to be represented. There's no explanation why the winners of World War II should be in charge and the directors and the directors of the security UN Security Council. The world needs global governance on the climate issue, end quote. I take those two together, and I really... I really do think that there are world leaders. I mean, this isn't a new thing um, in terms of leaders from the global South, but I do think there are global leaders from uh, fr from the South who are pushing for radical reform and some of the institutions we have most taken for granted since about 1945. And if they are successful, we could we could see a very different world coming out of these negotiations. Well, uh, to our guest is Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist. She's covering the UN Conference on Climate for The Nation magazine. And Tina, we're really quite lucky to have you. I mean, you, you, you broke that down beautifully. And by the way, for people who may be wondering why the name Bridgetown, Bridgetown is the capital city of Barbados, which is my island nation. And, you know, it's good that we, you know, causing this kind of stir and challenging um, this Bretton Woods, <laughs> these institutions coming out of Bretton Woods and, and now being backed up by Lula. But looking at the clock, the time just goes so quickly. Um, one of the other uh, controversial um, areas that has come up, the New York Times is reporting that there's now a clash over how hot should we allow or nations allow the earth to get. And the Guardian is reporting that COP27 may be where we lose uh, 1.5, uh, you know, centigrade. We know that that 1.5 is, you know, the, the chant has been keep 1.5 alive and we need 1.5 to stay alive. So just tell us your thoughts on what is happening with that at this COP. 27. Yeah, thanks for bringing attention to that. I mean, these, these, it's the numbers, right? These degrees, the numbers for the financing, you know, for some people, they might make eyes glaze over, um, or, or, or really ask the question of like, what's the difference between 1.5 and two degrees? Why does that little, little amount matter? We have already um, heated the globe 1.1 degrees, and we're seeing the effects of that right now within our lifetimes. I mean, this isn't a future scenario. I think a study uh, was just out today that that, you know, took took note of how many counties in the US had experienced some form of climate devastation this year. And it was pretty staggering in terms of the numbers that it found. Um, and, and this kind of experience has been going on in the world disproportionately in the global south for the past decade. This is not a, a new thing for most countries in the global south. So, so that's at 1.1 degrees. 1.5 to stay alive is the mantra that Pacific Island nations came up with 
in order to lobby and agitate for 1.5 degrees. Um, a lot of low-lying atolls in, in, in the Pacific predominantly, but not exclusively, will be underwater if we if we lose track of 1.5. And 1.5 should be the goal because that's already going to mean increased climate devastation. We're talking increased droughts. We're talking increased sea level rise, uh, you know, these kind of unpredictable weather events that we're seeing, not with extreme heat waves uh, affecting different parts of the globe. So 1.5 to stay alive is the mantra of the Pacific Islands. And I do think that that's that's what, what the goal needs to be. The reason that there's slippage here or that the door is being opened for slippage is that the Paris Agreement, which was passed at the UN climate negotiations in 2015, stated that we should aim to, to stay to 1.5, but it also made mention of 2.0 uh, oh. degrees. And this is the reason why there's such arduous debate and uh, it, over the course of two weeks about the specific language, because once you allow 2.0 degrees to get into these kinds of documents that they get cited in the future. Um, and you just, you want to keep, you want to keep things moving forward in, in the right direction. And so there's a lot of discussion about, you know, trying to keep out 2.0, for example. And I think that's, you know, yeah, I think the focus should be on 1.5 to stay alive. Um, it's 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 low-lying island nations that are going to be hardest hit, and then um, sub-Saharan Africa is already um, intensely hit when uh, through droughts um, when, when the when the increases uh, go up. I mean, we're seeing that right now. There's an ongoing drought that's uh, devastating a number of different countries. Yeah, and it's it's so outrageous to think that um, of putting profit before the lives of people, but also all of, of the natural world, you know, mm -hmm. all of the animals, the critters, you know, et cetera, that will be destroyed by this. And we can only guess who the players are that really want to push 2.0 versus, you know, 1.5. But that, that, that could be a whole other discussion. But I also wanted to, uh, you know, we have to wrap up very shortly, but I, I read that, um, first of all, that there are few uh, people are complaining, women are complaining that there are too few women um, negotiating at this conference that is very, very male dominated. And then um, indigenous women uh, from the Amazon, they held a press conference um, calling out, um, talking about the violence committed against their bodies and their land and making a connection uh, between those two. And they say, a Quechua woman says, quote, we are the main custodians of the untouched forests. If women are protected, we will also protect the territories and ecosystems essential to climate mitigation. So I thought that was interesting to putting together the issue of violence against women and violence against the land, um, Tina. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was a very big push. Um, I mean, the attention was brought to to the issue of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, each day has kind of a focus at the climate negotiations, and this this focus on gender inequity uh, was a really big focus at COP twenty seven. I think. Um, I, I mean, uh, one would want to just fact check this, but I believe I saw a figure that. 
out of the heads of state attending, only 6% are women. So that was one figure that was um, cited. I think uh, the, the numbers of women attending this year's um, UN climate negotiations are lower than they have been in other years. But I think importantly, it's um, with regard to the, the issue of, of the climate, um, women are disproportionately impacted by climate by the climate crisis. And the reason for that is in a lot of countries around the world, women are the ones that are that are outside of the home. I mean, one thinks about women as being at home, but they're outside of the home doing a lot of the labor that be it in the fields, be it gathering um, water, these types of things. And it means that they are more exposed to the elements. Um, so if there's, you know, climate crisis uh, events, women are, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but there's been a lot of research that's been done on how the climate crisis disproportionately impacts women. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the impact on people's health. I mean, you're absolutely right. Women, we're doing uh, the work on the land outside of the home, but we're also the caregivers in the home so that when people's health is destroyed, their well-being, I mean, physically and emotionally, it is for the most part, you know, women uh, doing the work of, of uh, putting you know, putting people together. But I see we just um, getting a note that we just have about two minutes left. How time flies. You know, Tina, we know that, well, we'll see if COP wraps up uh, 26, but we're going to want to do a wrap up uh, hopefully next week sometime. So we're going to be chasing you <laughs> again. Uh, to, it sounds to great. It's always wonderful to be on the program. Right, but just just very quickly now, one of the things that Lula announced is that Brazil wants to host uh, COP uh, 2025. And I guess after Bolsonaro, there are reports that he was treated like a rock star, right? Quite the opposite of, of Bolsonaro. So um, just any quick uh, final thoughts from you and Tina. Also tell us where can people go to read what you're writing about COP 27? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Lula was treated like a rock star. There were big chants and, and songs uh, as he was coming in. He did offer to host the uh, the next UN climate comp, not the next one, but the one in two years, not only in Brazil, but also in the rainforest. And people can find my writing by going to the nation or uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Tina Gerhardt EJ. So those are ways to find my writing. Right. Well, Tina, we hope to speak with you again soon. And thank you so very much for joining us. All the best. Thanks, thank Margaret. All righty. We are out of time today. Show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project for partnering with us for our Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. Our guest, Tina Gerthardt, who's covering the UN Conference on the Environment for the Nation magazine. I'd like to thank assistant producer Alicia Vargas, our board op, our engineer for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Uh, Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. And you all, please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.